Shall we pray? Holy Spirit, you are here, you are God, and you are the particular person of the Trinity that Jesus told us is the teacher, the revealer of truth, and you are also called the comforter and a paraclete, someone who's called alongside to help us. And so we need your help. We would like your help. You help us to experience Jesus. You, ex you help us to experience the power of the Word of God and the God of the Word. Please bring your influence to bear upon this time together, Lord, in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? Amen. amen. Would you agree the conflict is everywhere? In families? Your family have any conflict? Marriages? Neighborhoods sometimes. Sometimes neighbors won't even talk to each other. Things can get so bad at work with coworkers that sometimes we don't even like going to work. We see a nation that's polarized. In my lifetime, I've never seen this nation more polarized. Things were pretty bad in the 70s when I was young, 60s and 70s. But I don't remember us canceling each other when we disagreed with each other. Things are pretty bad. And conflict exists even in churches. And I've been realizing that we need more than good information to help us to do conflict well. Part of my life over the last probably 20 years or so, has been helping churches address conflict. It's become a bit of a specialty. After being a pastor of a couple of churches where I saw some, some very toxic things happen, I pastored a church in the Twin Cities that had a long history of trying to fire their pastors, and they were unsuccessful for about 40 years of trying that until I became their pastor. And they voted me and the whole church leadership team right on out of the church. And I went from there to a growing ELCA Lutheran church, the most liberal of the Lutheran streams. But this was a church that was leading people to Jesus literally every week. This was a church where people actually got filled with the Holy Spirit. This was a church where people received miracles of healing. My, my boss was one of the most gifted men I've ever met. But he had learned in the course of time that he would lie whenever it suited him. Like he wanted a, a raise, a significant raise. So he told the personnel team who was responsible for his compensation package that he'd been invited to be the senior pastor of a local megachurch and they were going to pay him well into the six figures. And I was a little suspicious of that. And I knew people at that church, and I contacted them, and I said, have you called him to serve you as your next pastor? And they said, no, he interviewed. He didn't make it past the first round of interviews. I said, okay. So I went to my, my boss, and I said, what are you doing? He got very angry with me, he reminded me that he was my boss, and I reminded him that I was his brother. And I said, well, this just isn't okay. 
And I reminded him also that he would often brag from the pulpit that I was his accountability partner and he had invited me to speak into his life. And I said, so that's what I'm doing right now. And he began to cry. And I thought, maybe he's gonna turn a corner because along with his tears, he said, thank you. You're one of the few people who will speak truth into my life. He said, I, I've got to work on this stuff. But then things continued to get worse. Things got so bad that he did something. If it wasn't illegal, it was highly in unethical. And by this time I said, I suggest that you take a leave of absence from vocational ministry. His marriage was a, was a mess and his personal financial resources were a mess, and he himself was a mess. And I said, it would be a wonderful thing if you could get help and eventually come back and lead this church. But I said, in the meantime, we need to seriously think about getting a third, a third party to come into the church and lead the church in your absence. And I specifically said, not me, and not the other associate. We need someone with a fresh set of eyes. And he agreed. For a moment, he agreed. He said, that's what I need, and that's what this church needs. And we began to talk about who we might get to come into the church. And we even agreed on a particular person who would be a good choice. But within, it seemed like within minutes, it was like a switch flipped in his head. And he said, you want my job, don't you? And I said, if I wanted your job, would I have suggested that we bring somebody in from the outside to lead the church? And he said, I want your resignation. And I said, I'm not going to give you my resignation. And he said, you need to take a leave of absence. I said, that's not happening. And he said, then you're fired. And I said, okay. And I have to tell you, he didn't have legal authority to fire me, but I knew that I was not gonna stay and divide the church to keep my job. But for the months that followed, he slandered me from the pulpit. He described me by name as an Absalom. I was a usurper. He has continued to do that for the decades since this has happened. He's my age, he's 70 years of age, and in the last 10 years or so, for I don't know how long, he's been pastoring a church in another state and apparently enjoying a lot of success, very large church with a large budget and a large staff, and he just got fired again for another financial impropriety. It's a very gifted person, but a very unhealthy person. And these two experiences, being fired by a congregation with a history of trying to fire their pastors and being fired by a man who was not open to any kind of accountability, they were very formative for me. I still have a lot to learn about conflict, but one of the things I've learned is that no matter how much I learn about how to do conflict better, that if we're going to do it well, we're going to need to experience some healing. I don't know if there are any golf lovers here. I am not a golf lover. I don't enjoy golf. I've been out on the course many times to play. I always have friends who insist that if I play with them, I'll enjoy the game. I don't enjoy the game. About all I enjoy is golf humor. 
Like if you golf, you should wear two pair of pants in case you get a hole in one. <laughs> but if you do like golf, and I know there's some golf lovers here, I want you to imagine that you won a lesson from Scotty Scheffler. He's the number one ranked golfer in the world. You won a lesson, an hour-long lesson, and he's going to teach you how to swing off of the tree in a driving, the tee in the driving range. But the very morning that you're going to meet him out at the golf course, you throw out your back. So even though you're getting a lesson from an expert, one of the best in the entire world, you're going to get great information. You can't apply the information because you're physically not capable of applying it. You need healing before you can apply that information. And I think the same is true when it comes to addressing conflict. Good information can help, but only if you're whole and healthy enough to apply it. And sometimes I think in my conflict training sessions, I haven't spent enough time talking to people about getting whole and healthy, getting healed. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. In order to experience healing, there's some things we need to know. Like we need to know that God actually loves to heal. God loves to heal. You might say, how, how do you know that? Well, the scriptures teach it. And the most profound example we have from scripture is the person of Jesus himself. Jesus, according to the Bible, is the embodiment of God's will and, and God's nature. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Paul says that in him, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. I've made this statement before. I'm going to say it again. It needs repeating. There's no one Christ-like feature to God. Did Jesus heal? Yeah, he healed a lot. And consider that Jesus never said no to anybody who requested healing. Consider that there were some people that Jesus healed who didn't even ask for it. And I suggest to you that he would have done more. And he loved healing so much that he, he called his disciples and he authorized them and he empowered them and he sent them out to do the same thing. And then he told them to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit so that they could continue to do the stuff that he did after he was no longer physically present with them. And that's what the book of Acts tells us. Acts is a testimony of what God wants to do after Jesus was no longer physically present through the power of the Holy Spirit, through people who would be available. God loves to heal. But just because God loves to heal doesn't mean we will automatically receive healing. And we'll get to some ways we can experience healing in just a moment. But before that, I want us to look at some symptoms that may give away the idea that may be evidence to us that we need healing, especially, especially healing, the healing of our hearts, the, the healing of the, the inner person. According to Psalm 34, God loves to heal the crushed in spirit. God not only cares about people's physical wounds, he cares about their psychological wounds. But how do you know if you really need healing in, in, in the kind of healing that would enable you to address conflict in your various relationships better than you currently do? How do you know that? 
Well, here are some symptoms that I've found are certainly true in my life and in the lives of people I've observed who are up to their necks in conflict. Agitation. You seem to have a, to be in a chronic state of agitation or unsettledness. You find that you've become resentful. You're resentful towards some people. You find that you don't have peace. You've lost your peace. Your moment. Jesus wants you to have peace. He's the prince of peace. He said, my peace I give to you. The Bible tells us, even in the Old Testament, God keeps in perfect peace those whose mind is, is stayed on him because they trust in him. God loves peace. Peace just comes from the very presence of God. But when we've lost our peace, it should be a clue to, to us that something's amiss. Something's wrong. Tormenting thoughts are also a symptom. Your mind is no longer a happy place. You're constantly thinking about how you were hurt, how you were injured, what some person said to offend you. It's on your mind all the time. You just can't shake it. And then you find that you gossip. I mean, I would like to ask you, I have to ask myself this, do a self-evaluation. Do you hear yourself gossiping? And you might say, well, I'm telling the truth. You can be telling the truth about a situation and still gossiping. What makes it gossip is your intention. You see, it's really not gossip when you're processing with someone who's a spiritual mentor to find out what is the best, the best path forward. That's not gossip, that is processing. But when you're telling six or seven people just because you want to slander the reputation of the person who hurt you, that's gossip. That's gossip. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 and read what it says about a person who is a chronic gossiper. It says they don't have eternal life abiding in them. It's pretty serious. It's a symptom of not walking with Jesus. That sounds scary to me. It should scare us. Another symptom that I need healing in order to address conflict well is I, is I have a reluctance to hear the other person's perspective. I just don't even want to hear it. You ever been there? I've been there. Another symptom is you have a reluctance to even be in the company of that person who you're having a conflict with. You don't even want to see them. Their presence upsets you. Now, all of these things can be true about you, and here's something God wants you to know. He doesn't want you to feel shame about that. God doesn't want us to know stuff like that so we just crawl in a hole and say, I'm a, such a loser. God wants us to know that stuff so that we are awakened to our need to get help. So when you go to a doctor and, and the doctor takes a blood test and he says, man, we've got some serious health issues here and he wants you to know the specific nature of them, it's never to shame you. It's always to help you to find a path to healing. Those are some symptoms. Maybe as you're sitting here, you're saying, well, I think I need some healing. That'd be a good place to be. I think I need some healing. 
as our hearts heal, we'll find a path forward. So my heart was very unhealed in my relationship with my spouse in about 2010. Our, our relationship could be defined after all these many years we were married. On, on Wednesday of next week, it would have been 48 years. And I knew my wife really truly wanted to please Jesus. She knew that about me. We were very different from each other. One of my kids said to me, I think the only thing you have in common is Jesus. You're so different. And we locked horns a lot. And things came to a head in 2010. I remember being so, so resentful toward my wife. I, I felt like I could walk out the door and not look back. And I told her that. I said, and I'm not telling you this so that this is calculated to get you to respond. I said, I have no energy left for this relationship. I really didn't care. And usually, if I found myself in that state, it would be alarming to me, and I'd, I'd say, wow, God, this sounds worrisome. But at this time, I didn't even care. I thought to myself, I don't even want to ask God to change my heart. I don't want to do it. And I talked to him about that. I said, just to be completely honest, to get all the cards on the table, I have nothing left for this relationship. Nothing. And somehow, in just a moment of time, just admitting that, I, I received this little hint of willingness to say, okay, if you really want to change my heart, come on in. Do you know it never helps to pretend? If you're feeling miserable, if you have no hope for your marriage, don't fake it. Don't pretend that it's okay when it's not. And certainly don't pretend to yourself. And don't present, uh, pretend to God. And if you have that kind of resentment in any other relationship, with a child, with your own parents, with a coworker, with a church member, don't fake it. Don't pretend. It's not noble. It's stupid. It's stupid. It keeps you stuck. It's far better to say, God, I, I, I think I hate this person. I hate her. I wish I didn't. Or maybe you're not even there. Maybe you don't care that you, you hate. Just be completely honest. You'll never make pro progress with God in order to receive his help if you're not truthful, entirely truthful. You know, it's so interesting to me that Job, it was real, revealed to him, right, that he didn't know much about God as much as he thought he knew. And certainly his friends didn't know very much about God, but in the end... God rebukes his friends and says, but you, you didn't speak what is right about me like Job did. That is a confusing text. When God had just said, over a period of a few chapters, Job, you don't know squat. What did Job get right? Well, actually, the Hebrew meaning of that word for right means truthful. What God was saying that is often lost in the translation is, Job let it all hang out. 
He did not pretend. He did not fake it till you make it. He, he just let his frustration pour out. And though God didn't agree, agree with Job's assessment of how life works, God was proud of Job for being truthful to the core of his being. Truthful to the core of his being. That's what you and I need to be. So in my admitting to God, I don't, I don't think I even want to ask for your help to get a new heart, to get any kind of motivation to work on this marriage. Just in that admission, there was this little hint of grace that entered into my heart, and I heard myself say, okay, I'll, I'd like a new heart for, G, for, for Laura. I'd like a new heart. And that night I had a dream. And in the dream, I was in a room as big as our lobby here. And immediately I knew it was a medical facility. And there were people, because there were people in lab coats, everyone had a lab coat. People were walking back and forth like everybody was answering to an emergency. And, and there were five people around me, grabbed me on either side, grabbed me by the shoulders and start ushering me toward an operating room. And they said, Mr. McClure, your new heart has arrived. And I said, this sounds really serious. I mean, I know that open heart surgery is, a, is risky and, and, and a heart transplant would be really risky. So I said, do I have time to call my family? They said, no time, no time. So the next thing I know, in the dream, I was wide awake, even when they cut my chest open and I saw those big clamps holding my chest cavity open and they were inserting a new heart in the dream and I woke up with a new heart for my wife. It was a while. That was a miracle. To me, that was as profound a miracle as when my back was healed as a 19-year-old. Now, years later, I re-injured it, but when you've experienced an instantaneous healing, you know it's a miracle. This is a miracle. When God can change your heart, when your heart is full of resentment, when you don't even want to work on a relationship anymore, all you can do is see the fault of the person. And maybe that fault is real. Maybe that fault is, is, is actually not something you're imagining. Maybe it really is as bad as you think it is. And it seems insurmountable. But God gives you a new heart. Oh my goodness, it's a game changer. So it was after getting a new heart, I thought, well, all this does really is it gives me the opportunity to work on my stuff because I couldn't guarantee that my wife was going to work on her stuff. But she did. And for the first time in a long time, she went to get some inner healing prayer from a person we knew who was a pretty fruitful practitioner. And if you don't know about that, I can tell you later. Come and talk to me, and there's other people here who can talk to you about it. There's a ministry here called Oaks of Righteousness that does this kind of stuff. It basically is about get, letting God get at the stuff that's inside of you, the stuff that you can't change no matter how hard you try. I want to tell you, there's some things inside of you and there's some things inside of me that we cannot change no matter how hard we try. In fact, 
Sometimes the best we can do is modify our behavior. But you know what? The Christian life isn't about modifying your behavior. It's about experiencing transformation that you couldn't, that you couldn't create on your own. I mean, if you can create it, you're the hero in your story. But we don't want to be the hero. I hope we don't want to be the hero in our story. We want a life we can't explain without, without God. It's kind of like the 12 steps. What I've realized, I love 12 step, the, the whole recovery community. I'm a big fan. I really am. But I realized something, that if, you don't, if you're in a 12-step program and you don't have a spiritual awakening, all those steps are just exercise. They're just hoops. You've got to have a spiritual awakening. And you know what? Even if you've been saved for 40 years, you still need more spiritual awakenings. Whoever invented this, this stupid idea that you get saved and that's the only spiritual awakening you get? I read somewhere that we can pray, give us this day our daily bread. And I want to tell you, you don't have to have a historic revival, visit Fergus Falls again, to experience revival. Every Christian can live in revival your whole life. You don't have to wait for something to happen to you. Ask God to help you get out of bed and spend some time with him. Crack that Bible open. Read, read what it says. Cry out to him. Ask him to help you to become desperate for him. And do that every day. You can say, well, I can't sustain that over the long haul. You don't have to. You only have to do it one day at a time. Jesus said, don't borrow trouble for tomorrow. Every day has enough trouble of its own. Today I can read the word. Today I can spend time with God. And when I spend time with God, when I get his word inside of me, and when I live in community, guess what? I give God a chance to get at my heart. And then I begin to live in revival. And it doesn't matter if I never went to Toronto or someplace in Florida or some other place in the world because I live in revival every single day. I have lived in revival for 52 years. That's not bragging, that's testifying. It hasn't been rocket science. A long time ago, I was an 18-year-old kid, and I fell in love with Jesus. And it was the end of the school year, and the leader of our campus ministry said, in the fall, some of you will come back to school, and you won't even know Jesus anymore. You won't be walking with Jesus. And I thought, why would that happen? And he said, because some of you will fail to spend time with him in solitude. Some of you will not spend time in the word. You'll not seek him in prayer. Some of you will stop being a part of your faith community. And I saw this warning in the book of Hebrews. It says, you know, don't neglect, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but all the more as you see the day of Jesus' return approaching. Get together, provoke one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It's not complicated. And I thought, I, I was scared to death at that possibility. I was scared as an 18-year-old college wrestler. I was a tough guy. But this scared me. I don't want to be that guy. I, listen, I know. I know I need community. I need community. I can't do this alone. I can't do this alone. Neither can you. I can't do it without meeting God in solitude. But this is the beginning. And so, so, getting back 
to what happened. When God gave me a new heart, I just knew I had to keep working on my stuff. And Laura got some healing prayer. And the change in Laura was jaw-dropping. Jaw-dropping. And it lasted. It lasted. From 2010 to the moment of her death, it lasted. That was the beginning. So if you're gonna, if you're gonna be able to do conflict better than you do it, your heart's gotta heal. It's gotta heal. You've gotta invite God to heal it. You know why? He's non-intrusive. He's love, right? God says he's agape. Agape is non-intrusive and non-coercive. The Bible says love doesn't insist on its own way. Jesus got shoved out of the church of Laodicea. Does he come barging in? No, he knocks. He knocks on a door. Stays, stays outside until they open the door, unless they open the door. He's still outside of some churches. Did you know that? Do, have we pushed him out? You got to ask that question. Have we pushed him out? If we're pushing Jesus out, we better welcome him back in. We better say, Lord, let us hear your knock. Please keep knocking. Let us hear your knock. Let us, let us hear your voice. Let us open the door. Help us to open the door. We need you. So here's some steps. You want your heart healed? Invite God to heal it. Talk to Jesus about what hurt you. Talk to him. You might say, well, I don't want to talk about my hurts. Well, not talking about them hasn't helped you very much. Talk about them to Jesus. Ideally, in the company of a spiritual mentor. If you need a spiritual mentor, come and, come and talk to Nicholas. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the elders. We'll help you find a spiritual mentor. Talk to Jesus about what hurt you, and don't minimize it. We all know there's somebody else who's experienced a lot worse than we've experienced. We all know that. That's always true. There's certainly people I wouldn't trade places with, but that doesn't help me get healed when I need to get healed. Am I making sense? Invite Jesus into the pain. Invite him into it. Ask him, also, this is, this is where it gets really ugly. Ask him to help you see your role in the conflict. Ask him to help you see your role. You know there's no innocent parties in conflicts? Ouch. Here's another good thing to ask him. Ask him to forgive you for your part and to help you to be willing to make amends. Sometimes that's the hardest thing to do because we're so afraid that that other person will feel like we're letting them off the hook for what they did. It's not our job to keep them on the hook. It's not our job to keep them on the hook. My job in a conflict, when I realize how I hurt, whether it was my wife or someone else, my job is to say, I am sorry, please forgive me. I am sorry, please forgive me. I don't need to say, but, but you know, you hurt me too. Because I want to tell you something. That's about as spiritually immature as you can get. And quit being a whiny pants and quit being a baby. If, if you will allow God to show you that stinking log in your own eye, you really show you your own mess, you'll keep your mouth shut when it comes to pointing out other people's messes and just say, I want to own my part in this. I am sorry. Please forgive me. 
and you can ask him to show you how to make amends. Along the way, you might need to consider that he's going to want you to forgive this person from the heart. Forgive this person from your heart. That's what he calls us to do in Matthew 18, 35. No such thing as, I mean, superficial forgiveness. Real forgiveness is not superficial. But if you're going to forgive somebody from the heart, it, w- it would help to know what forgiveness isn't. It, it isn't implying that what happened to you is actually okay. Forgiving some, someone doesn't mean you're implying that what happened isn't is, was okay. Am I making sense? And it doesn't mean trust is restored. Forgiving a pedophile doesn't mean you're going to let that pedophile babysit your kids. So you can forgive someone you don't, you don't trust, and you can admit to yourself, I still don't trust her. I don't trust her. You don't have to. You do not have. Trust is earned. But forgiveness needs to be unconditional. And if you're going to be a whole and healthy person, you have to learn to forgive from your heart. And forgiveness is not natural, it's supernatural. Retaliation is natural. Retaliation is the way of the world. But it's not the way of Jesus. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, guess what? That's off the table. You just don't get to retaliate. You don't get to pay insult for insult. Forgiveness is canceling the debt of being owed an apology and amends that are owed to you. You cancel those debts. You cancel them. You're owed an apology, but you're not making that necessary to forgive. You're not making the fact that you would like amends necessary to forgive them. You just decide with God's help to forgive them. And forgiveness is aided It's helped along, in other words. When I declare a person to be forgiven, I declare it. I actually declare it to myself in the presence of God, and I declare it to God. I forgive, and you put the person's name in there. I forgive. Forgiveness is also helped along by praying for the person who hurts you. Jesus taught us in Luke's Gospel, Luke 6, pray for those who mistreat you. Have you ever prayed for the person who hurt you, specifically, consistently? Pray for their well-being. Not that God will convict them. Forgiveness has helped along when we bless that person. And, and according to the Bible, a blessing is a formal decree in which we aim to transmit God's goodness. It's a powerful thing to bless someone. When we declare a blessing, it's a decree. It's supposed to have authority and, and oomph and unction. And something is supposed to be transmitted, something of God's goodness. And Jesus told us, bless those who curse you. Bless them. He doesn't say, wait for them to acknowledge that they've been cursing you and apologize. He just says, bless them. Bless them. Do you see that we're called to a whole different way of life than a life of retaliation? And it's, this is not natural for anybody. And this is not easy. This is the hard work of Christianity. And yet it's possible because the Spirit of God will help us. He'll help us 
with our pain. And that's why truly being able to forgive from the heart starts with saying, Jesus, this relationship has hurt me, and here's how. And Jesus, I invite you to heal this wound in me and show me how you want to heal it. Because truthfully, brothers and sisters, God works through human agents, and he works by means. When you look at the New Testament, almost every time somebody experienced a miracle of healing, they got it because somebody prayed for them or ministered to them in some way. God works through human agents, and he works by means. Sometimes he works by the means like, for example, Peter's shadow fell over some people and they got healed. Uh, uh, An apron was taken from Paul and put on a sick person, and it drove out demons, And sometimes God works by the means, excuse me, of the water of baptism or the bread and the wine of communion. God works by means, and he works by human agents. So go get some help and stop thinking you're going to figure this out on your own. I mean, I want to tell you that. You know what keeps you stuck and saying, I'll figure this out on my own? It's called P-R-I-D-E, pride. And you know, if you ever wonder what's the worst sin you struggle with, let me answer the question for you. It will always be pride. You might say, well, I have a propensity for an addiction to porn. I'll tell you what drives it, pride. You think you're entitled to gratify a natural need in an unholy way. That entitlement is backed by pride. Pride is behind every sin. So yeah, ask yourself, what is the, my particular vulnerability? Let me confess to you, Life Church. Let me confess to you. You ask me, Kevin, what's the thing you struggle with most? Pride. And you know what's ridiculous about it? I have no reason to be proud. What human being has a right to be proud? Even if you have a a really good athletic ability, where did you get that ability from? You didn't manufacture it. It was given to you. If you have a mind to, 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 to be able to be an inventor, if you're an Elon Musk, guess where you got that talent? Got it from God. There's no reason to be proud, but we're so proud. It makes no sense at all. Pride doesn't need logic to function. And so my suggestion is, realize that it's pride that keeps you thinking, I'll handle this on my own. You know, just Jesus and I, will talk about it. Jesus works through human agency. Go talk to somebody. You know, if you and I get healing, you know what's going to happen, seriously? Our joy and our peace is going to return. Our joy and peace are going to return. When you get healing, you know, when I got that new heart, it didn't matter what Laura did or didn't do. My peace returned. My joy returned. I knew my business wasn't Laura, it was me. I wanted her to get some help. I wanted her to address some things, but that wasn't my business anymore. I had one one job, love her as Christ, love the church. So if we get healing, guess what? It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be good. And you know, we're going to become, as a congregation, if we get healing and we we start addressing conflict better, we're gonna become a safe place for broken people. Do you know Ottertail County is full of broken people? Do you know we can make an impact? We could be a church that makes a difference? And, and guys, 
You know, I mean, it's really, church is fun when the seats are full. That's fun. But if that's the final goal, it's not a worthwhile goal. We don't want to see people as butts in a seat. We want to see people as souls in heaven. We want to see people of eternal value. And we want to understand that this county is full of impoverished people, broken people, addicted people, self-righteous people. That's why we want to fill the seats. Because we want to deliver people from an eternity without Jesus. So, I think we could become a healing center. I think we could. And again, it's not, it's not about getting a reputation and, and being known as the biggest church or, you know, aren't we something special? It's about just being faithful to Jesus. Jesus. Jesus would do a healing center in every church. In fact, if every church in Fergus becomes a healing center, is that a bad thing? I think that would be an awesome thing. Wow. But it starts with healing our own people. It starts with us getting healed. Because if you get healed, guess what? You can transmit what you have, but you can't give what you don't have. So maybe today you'd like to say, I want to receive healing and I want to be someone that can give healing. And you know where you're going to start giving it? You're going to start giving it if you're married to your spouse or maybe to your kids, maybe to your neighbors, maybe to somebody else, and certainly to the people in this church. That sound good? How about you stand with me and we're going to pray. Let's do our best. I want to say if you're watching online or you're just here today and you've never experienced Jesus, Jesus has healing for you, the healing of your soul, the healing of your body, the healing of your mind. And all you got to do is say, Jesus, I want everything you have for me. Jesus is the key. Jesus is the name by which we experience God. There's only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and it's the name of Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way. He didn't say, I'm a way. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Paul says there's one mediator between God and man himself, man Christ Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no experience in God. You might say, well, that sounds pretty bigoted. I didn't say it. Jesus did. So did Paul. So did Peter. So if you want to receive healing, I'm just asking you to extend your hands out like a humble little child and say, Jesus, I am a child in my mind and in my spirit. I am a child. I'm a child in need of help, and I need to not be childish, but childlike. And in childlike faith, I come to you, and I need you, and I welcome you. I welcome you even if I was saved a long time ago. I want to get saved again. I want to experience salvation again today. I want a revival today. I want you to cap captivate my heart today. I want you to wash away my sins today. I want you to forgive me today for the ways I've hurt people and I've been self-righteous and proud and self-absorbed and self-centered and self-serving. And I want, to, you know, I want to invite you to heal my heart. I want you to help me to be able to forgive people from my heart and, and I want to worship you today. I want to sing your praise today. I want to thank you today. And I want to say, thank you, Lord, because you are washing away my sins. Because you are forgiving me. Because you are going to help me to do better when it comes to conflict. And I'm going to do better because I'm coming at it from a place of healing. Heal this church, Lord Jesus. Heal this church, Lord Jesus. Give us a church we can't explain without you. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen?